Well, good morning. It is good to see you back in this room, and if it is too cold, sorry about you. We are thankful for that. It is good to be back. I do, does anybody miss the gym a little bit? Maybe just a little, no? Okay. No, you're good? Okay, okay, yeah, amen. All right, all right, Jeremiah misses the gym. All right, well, good to see you this morning. This is a sweet uh, morning for us because uh, we're gonna, later on in the service, we're gonna be able to, uh, to partake in communion uh, with one another, and then at the very end of our service, we're gonna have a neat opportunity to, uh, to commission our armor bearers who have uh, served, they have served for their year and, uh, and we're gonna get a chance to commission them. I just am excited about how often we are standing on this uh, platform commissioning people into uh, the work of the ministry, commissioning people into the things that God has called uh, for them. That's an exciting uh, thing and I'm, I'm excited for how often that seems to be happening here. We're gonna get to do that uh, this morning, but I want to, uh, I want to, as I was thinking about the convergence of those two things, about commissioning uh, with our armor bearers and communion that we're going to partake in here in just a moment, I was just thinking about the overlap. God, is there an overlap? What, what, what is the connection between the two? And actually, I think you'll find, and I want to go to John 6 this morning, I think that you'll find that there is a profound overlap in these two things. The, the overlap between commissioning and communion is one that I think Jordan Allen did a great job last week of getting us into and that I wanna press into a little bit further this morning as we uh, prepare for communion. So I want you to turn to John 6 and I'll give you a little bit of a, of a setup. Uh, Jesus and his fame is starting, to, uh, is starting to spread at this point. Um, earlier in the chapter, we read of Jesus feeding uh, the 5,000. There's this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And apparently at some point, Jesus, uh, and I can't imagine the, the, the moment um, after that feeding of the 5,000, what that would have been like, the clamoring for uh, his attention. And um, at some point in all of this, Jesus tries to uh, slip away to a quiet place. We know that this is often what Jesus would do. He would find his way to a retreat in quiet and silence. And uh, he apparently tries to do this, but people figure out that he's gone and they find their way, they find their way to him. They figure out uh, where he is. And so the crowd, and, and in John 6, there's no, there's no break here. So we've got the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus slips away and the crowd, and when we're learning of the crowd, we're, who are we talking about? We're talking about this same group that was involved in this miraculous uh, feeding of the 5,000. So there's this group of them that discover Jesus is gone and they want to they find him. And so they go and they, uh, and they seek him out. We're going to pick up in John chapter 6, uh, verse 25, and Jesus is going to dive into that miracle that he just performed as the crowd seeks him out. I want you to listen for some of the things that he says here. It says in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So the crowd is essentially, they come to Jesus, they find him, and they are asking him to, to uh, give us another sign to, to prove that we should believe in you. 
And they're referring to, the sign that they're referring to as they, uh, as they seek Jesus is they compare this moment to uh, when the children of Israel fed the manna in the wilderness. And they're saying, look, okay, show us something. Give us something. Give us some sign. And then what Jesus does is Jesus grabs that story that they're referring to and he points to himself. He begins to teach them how that moment when the children of Israel were fed the manna in the wilderness is actually a pointer, a marker, a shadow that is pointing ahead to the greater reality of the Messiah, of what he would do and of who he was. If you go down a few verses into verse 32, it says, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus says that bread, that manna that you referred to from your fathers in the wilderness, that bread is pointing forward to me, that I am the bread of God. Because the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Jesus again is saying that that the miraculous feeding in the wilderness, that feeding of bread in the wilderness was a sign pointing forward to the true bread of life, which he is himself. Okay, so we're tracking the conversation. Jesus is is giving them a clue about what God was, was talking about in the Old Testament when he fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. He's now fed the crowds. He's fed the 5,000, they've come to him and said, give us a sign. And Jesus is saying, I, it's already happened. That moment, that marker that is supposed to point you to the reality of what's going on here, that moment has occurred and that is pointing to me and I am that bread of life. Let's pick up in verse 48. I know we're skipping around a lot, but I want to get us to this point that Jesus makes in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So it's about to start getting really strange. Jesus is about to say maybe some of the strangest things that he says in all of the Gospels. He's about to really, really, really press them on who he is. Thus far, he's been been, uh, pointing back to a moment in in the children of Israel's history and drawing that forward to himself and speaking of himself as the bread of life. But he hasn't really pushed them really hard yet, but he is about to do it. Listen to what he says in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is not Sorry, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Whoa. (laughs) Some heavy stuff that Jesus gives for them to process He takes them all the way from the story of the children of Israel being fed in the wilderness and brings them all the way forward to the statement where he says, you must feast on my flesh and drink my blood. Now there are all sorts of reasons that we don't have time to get into today that that would have have been a completely crazy statement for Jesus to make. I think just on the surface, you can kind of read it though and go, yeah, that's a little bit strange, right? What's he talking about? He's already educated them on the bread of life. He's already taken that story of the children of Israel in the wilderness being fed manna from heaven. And he said, I am that bread except for, except for those that ate of that bread died. But those who feast on me, those who feast on this bread of life will never die. And then he says, he describes what the bread of life is and says that it is his very flesh and blood. That it is my flesh and blood that you must take into myself. He's telling them that unless you take the body and the blood into yourself, you will not be transformed and made new. You will not experience life. But to take the bread of life into yourself is to have the whole life of Jesus come and take residence in your being. Jesus is speaking to them about what he is going to do. He's speaking to them about the reality that he is about to give his very flesh and blood on the cross as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And whoever repents and receives his sacrifice of flesh and blood into themselves will receive eternal life. Now I want you to notice how harsh a division Jesus makes in this statement. Notice that he does not leave them any wiggle room for him to be anything other than what he is. There is no other way to life but through Jesus. There is no other way to life, and not even just through Jesus. He doesn't even, he's not even in general, like you just kind of have to agree that I'm a good teacher, or that I'm a prophet, or whatever. Jesus says, no, there is no other way through life except for to take into yourself the perfect sacrifice of my flesh and blood. There is no other option for receiving life but to partake in my flesh and blood, which I am going to give on the cross. Jesus has left no wiggle room to be a hobby in our lives. Jesus has left no wiggle room to be anything other but the perfect son of God, perfect in righteousness, giving himself, sacrificing himself on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He is nothing other than the savior of the world and he does not leave any other room for interpretation about who he is or about what he is going to to do. He is the bread of life, and we either fully give ourselves to him or we walk away. 
You either turn away or you're transformed, but there is no other option. And actually, that's exactly what happens. Right after he makes this statement, and he leaves no wiggle room. And it's interesting, it's a sidebar conversation. It's interesting how much wiggle room we've got with Jesus nowadays, but he doesn't seem to leave any wiggle room. It's either you fully and completely take on who I am, believe in me. And he doesn't just mean believe I'm a good idea. He means give yourself fully to me. Place the entirety of your life on me because I am the only way in which you can be saved. There's no wiggle room. But there are those standing here in this moment and, I, and those of us in the world today who hear that statement and are gonna turn away. There's a commissioning that happens right here. If we mean by commissioning being sent, then there's a commissioning. And you're either commissioned one of two directions. You're either commissioned away from Jesus having heard the good news about who he is and said, no, thank you, I am happy being God of my own life. Or you hear the good news of salvation. You believe on him, take on his flesh and his blood into yourself, believing on him and receiving life. And then there's another sort of commissioning. But either way, we are sent. There is no neutral. Watch this in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, it doesn't say skeptics, notice that. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's a commissioning. Now, it's not the kind of commissioning that we want, but it's a commissioning nonetheless. They are confronted with the reality of the only way in which life can be experienced and that reality is through the flesh and blood of Jesus the Messiah. And when they are confronted with that reality, they look it dead in the eye and they go, I'm good, I'm good. That's a sobering moment. That there are those that hear that teaching and then it says, turn away and no longer walk with him. But that's the confrontation of the cross. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus leaves us no space for neutral. He either is the son of God and the only way to life or he isn't. But there is no wiggle room. And we either receive that unto ourselves and walk in it or we like these that were called disciples we hear the harsh reality of the way of the cross and we say no thank you and we are commissioned away from him but there's another commissioning there's a there's a healthy commissioning here those that those that press in those that that cross the line and we read about it here it says many of the disciples turned and walked or walked away so Jesus says to the 12 do you want to go too What a powerful question for us this morning. As we hear the good news of salvation, as we hear about the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, the question is, what are you gonna do with that? Are you gonna hear that good news and turn away? Or are you and I, as Jesus says, well, where, where are you gonna go? He says this to the 12. And listen to Simon Peter. He says, Lord, where else should we go? You have the words 
of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter messes a lot up, but he got that right. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus draws this very, 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 very sharp line and says there is one way. And there are some that see that one way and it says that they turn back and didn't follow him. And then there are others that say, well, I'm gonna cross that line. Where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life and I have believed. There is nothing left for me in this world other than you. And it's that group, it's that group that crosses that line and says, we've, everything belongs to you. We've given everything to you. It's that group that crosses that line that hear these words from Jesus in Matthew 28, where Jesus tells them to go into the nations of the world and make disciples. Teach them everything that I've taught you. Teach them how to be obedient to me. Go and preach the gospel. Invite them in. Baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I will be with you wherever you go. It is those that cross the line that said, Jesus, where else would we go? It is those that are commissioned into the world with the good news of the gospel. And I think last week, man, I hope you were listening. If you weren't, if you missed it, you got to listen to Jordan's sermon. Jordan challenged us that being sent, going into the world with the message of Jesus is not an optional add-on for super-Christians. It is a fundamental and inseparable part of belonging to him. To experience transformation, to be given life in Christ is to be sent. It's not something else that we do later on when we've matured and really get it. It's not something that happens after we're saved. It's something that happens as part of being saved. To cross that line and believe in Jesus is to be sent. Now, throughout our lives, God may change the setting. He may change the setting in which you are sent. Here's the deal. If you are sitting in this room, I would say 85 to 90% of you sitting in this room this morning, your sending means Nacogdoches County. If you're from Shelby County or wherever else, man, welcome, but we... <laughs> Some of you are visiting, great. Wherever you're visiting from, that's where you've been sent. But those of us sitting in this room that call this place our home... This is where we have been sent as part of our confession of Jesus as Lord. We are not waiting for our orders. We are not hoping that someday God might call me if I get this Christian life thing right. We have already been sent if we have declared Jesus as Lord. And God may change that setting someday. That's why in our vision we say, and wherever we're sent, because we are not sovereign. He is, and he may, he may raise you up one day and say, bye, I'm gonna send you to Nepal. Where are you at? There you go. Or bye, it's time to go to New York. Where are you at? God may in his sovereignty send you somewhere else. But that's not the first time you've been sent. 
That's just God changing the setting in which you've already been sent. As long as God has sovereignly given us breath and life, he intends to use us to declare the glorious message of the gospel. And so as we take the bread and the cup this morning, my earnest prayer is that you and I would imagine this moment as a commissioning. We're not just taking the bread and the cup to remember and to celebrate the flesh and the blood of the perfect son of man who gave himself for us, though we are doing that. This is, to be sure, absolutely a celebration. But we are also being commissioned by him to go into all the nations of the world with the announcement of the good news that Jesus is Lord and that all who come to him by faith will be made free. What I want you to do this morning as you come forward and take of the bread and the cup, I want you to imagine this moment. You are literally saying, this is the means by which I have been saved. That it was the broken body and the spilled blood of Messiah Jesus that rescued me from my sin and death. And we are remembering that. But in remembering that, it is also, it is also his broken body and spilled blood that by the power of the Spirit has enabled you to be sent with the good news of the gospel. And so as you turn, you're gonna dip and then turn. You, as you have taken in the body and the blood, you turn and I want you to realize that that turning and going back to your seat is a symbol and a representation of you being sent, indwelled by the Spirit of God to announce the good news that set you free. Y'all with me in church this morning? Come on. This is simultaneously a celebration and a commissioning. And beloved, I pray that each and every one of us would recognize that it is only, it is only because of his death and resurrection that you and I have life. But it is because of his death and resurrection that we have life and the spirit and have been sent. 